The best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. Today, we are doing a guys take episode and we are doing a follow up finally to Alex Gladstein's even though I did kind of like do two ish, three ish uh, shorter guys takes in response to Alex Gladstein's piece on structural adjustment, how the IMF and World Bank repress poor countries. I really felt like it was it was in depth enough and eye-opening enough that it really, really deserved its own episode. A thorough guy's take, if you will. Um, so that is what we are doing today. We're going to talk about, or a big picture view, we're going we're gonna to do an overview of the IMF and World Bank scam, what they are up to, and what's, what gets me, and, and Sean, I mentioned yesterday, actually, towards the end of the episode, a listener of the show pointed out to me, sent me a DM, and had a really good point about the fact that this, generally people are unaware of this. You know, like most people, in fact, most people who listened to that read um, and or read Gladstein's piece did not realize the degree of just sinister and like the malicious control that the IMF and World Bank are exerting through their financial influence, through their monetary privilege, essentially. And even worse, that they describe it as aid. You know, it's one thing to be an evil piece of crap. It's another thing to call yourself a philanthropist and stand up on a pedestal and pat yourself on the back about how amazing you are. I would say it's unbelievable because of how insane the the perspective is and the propaganda that they push is in comparison to the reality of the consequences of what they do but it's not unbelievable it's very believable unfortunately so i want to start this out with just a general overview of why fractional reserve banking is a scam and more specifically why the bank is the only one that benefits from a situation where they can leverage themselves at the cost of the taxpayer or the consumer and that they can do this quietly. They can do this without making it obvious the risk that they are taking. And just the idea, just this is analogy I've, an analogy I've used many times on this show, but I think it's really good at illustrating the problem. The problem with issuing money as a loan owed to someone else. If you actually have the money, if it is something, it is value that you have actually earned and you are lending it out, this dynamic doesn't exist at all. You know, if I sell my car for, let's say I've got a really nice car, I sell it for $50,000. If I then turn around and loan that $50,000 to someone else who uses it to buy a car, understand that no fake resources have been created in that situation. I had a car. A car had been built. I had paid for that car. I had done my trade of value in order to obtain the car to begin with, which if we have a sound money, we know, 
and I obviously I did not steal any money in the process. We know that the sound money requires that I produced some other thing equivalent to $50,000 in value. Either I made and gave out uh, you know, 50,000 sandwiches in which I made a dollar on each sandwich, or I built a house and made $50,000 in profit and turned it into the car. Whatever it was, I had to make, I had to earn the money from someone else who voluntarily agreed to exchange with me. So my having $50,000 in a sound money economy basically necessitates or um, requires as a prerequisite that I produced something of value prior to it. That's why someone who has a car can know they're not being cheated when they get the $50,000 in response or in, in, uh, in exchange for it. So then they give me the car. But again, all of this is exchange. All of this is basically staked um, or staked with skin in the game at every single exchange that this value was worth it. That includes the house and the money, the house that I made and the money I received, then the money I exchanged for the car that I received, and then the car I sold and got the money back for, and then the money I loaned to you and the car you got. At every step along the way, everyone had to work. Everyone had to, had, have, had to find a voluntary person to make that exchange, that agreement with, which means that everyone took their own risk and made their own declaration individually as to the relative value of cars and houses and money, etc., etc., and sandwiches, if that's what I used to earn the money to begin with. That is why money works. That is why money is a coordinating mechanism to make the production and investment of value, of economic progress, beneficial. Without each step in that arrangement, without each person voluntarily agreeing or voluntarily judging and skin in the game, putting their own, uh, their own work and life and labor at risk in each exchange, then it's not, conver it's not communicating that information. It's not communicating the information of society's values. As soon as you have counterfeiting, as soon as you have fractional reserve, as soon as you have the issuance of money from nothing or by political decree or by subjective political opinion as to what's worth it and what's not and no one has skin in the game and no one pays for the price of being wrong and we collectively just destroy the value of the currency across society and nobody understands the risk involved and nobody understands what it's costing them because they're not even part of the arrangement. It's a quote-unquote social contract where we all get raped collectively by the fraud of the monetary system. Well, then it's not communicating any information. In fact, the only communicating, the information it communicates is either A, the fear of being put in prison for not participating in the forced system or not paying your taxes, or B, it's communicating the illiterate economic opinions of people in power. And I can't think of anyone who would understand less the costs involved and the need to actually not waste the resources than politicians. The ease, the disgusting incompetence, and the utter dismissiveness by which they spend hundreds of millions of times the amount of money that I make every year is hard to fathom. They do not in any sense whatsoever and cannot 
understand what the value of the money that I have earned is because I'm the one who earned it. When they spend it, when they spend hundreds of millions times the amount that I have earned, they could not be more disconnected from what it actually means. So that is a core principle, an important principle to base off of this, all of this off of. Only with direct exchange and with sound money is money even able to communicate true economic value per the judgment of every single person in each exchange along the way? So that's something I want you to hold in your head while we think about the degree of scam and why it is necessarily negative. It, was going, it is going to be essentially necessarily negative, the consequences of what the IMF and World Bank do. But since I already forgot, I want to actually take a break right here and thank our sponsors for today because they make me able to do this. I just paid off a major credit card um, from the holidays, uh, which we got some you know points back on, but I paid it off with my fold card, which means I got point back, points back on my credit card. And I got sats back on it. So I got credit card points or dollars back or cash back, whatever it is. And I got fold sats back. Plus, I feel extra good because I got 250 sats on my daily spin, which is just the faucet that the fold app has, which, by the way, you can participate in whether or not you get the fold premium card or do anything. If you just go to my link, guyswan.com slash fold, you will get 50,000 sats just for signing up. Just for just for making just downloading the app and making an account. No obligation. And you get the free daily faucet. It's the first thing I do every day. I open up my fold app, I do my spin. Trust me, if you had a bad if you have a bad habit of checking Twitter or getting lost in social media first thing in the morning, I'm telling you, don't do that. That's a very unproductive uh, uh, habit to have. Get do the fold app instead. It's a, it's a great way to get yourself a little morning sats boost. And, you know, put, your, put you in the right framework. I'm going to stack sats today. So check out Fold at guyswan.com slash fold. You will find it right in the show notes. Okay, so the next, the next thing I want to cover, um, another, another kind of foundational principle is if someone is giving you a loan, again, if I loan money to someone that is money I earned or is from something that I sold that is something that I earned, whatever. If I came by the money legitimately and it is sound money, then I actually know the price in the sense that I know the cost. I know the labor. I know the time. I know the skills. I know the risks. I know the trade-offs that I made to obtain that money. And if we have sound money, then your relative experience to money, your relative relationship to money ought to be as close as possible to the same outside of your extenuating circumstances, your environment and all that stuff. That's irrelevant. The money cannot account for any of that. It cannot know any of that information. The best it can do is be as stable in supply and in its rule set for each individual recipient or each individual user. This dynamic changes when you can issue money out of nothing for two reasons. One big shift that happens, one big uh, alteration to the, the fundamental incentives is that the bank, the issuing bank, the only thing they want is for that loan 
to never have to be wiped from their balance sheet. They just don't want to lose the total value of what was what was issued. Because as long as that loan exists, they make interest. And more importantly, they make interest payments on money they never had. On, on money that never existed, on value they never produced. They get interest just on the privilege of being able to issue money. So going back to the car example is they issue you a loan to buy or I, let's say I'm the bank. I issue you a loan of $50,000 to buy a car, but it's not $50,000 I earned. It's not $50,000 that somebody else earned that I'm risking. None of that. I don't, I don't have any basis. All I need to do, I, I want the interest payment. That's it. So I'm going to issue it to you at 10% interest, and now you just owe me a salary. You just owe me 10%. You owe me $5,000 every year until you pay, pay me the value of a car. But I've also completely abused the price system because, or basically destroyed the function of the price system because... I am no longer, the money chasing the car is no longer money that's actually been attached to some value. It's no longer money attached to real production in the real world. Suddenly, I have issued $50,000 into existence that's completely detached from any previous economic activity. So you are bidding up the value of the car outside of the price range of what a sound monetary system would allow. Because you're using units that didn't previously exist. You're using new supply of money. And when you buy that car, it's also important to think in the context of fractional reserve, how what a Ponzi it essentially is. Um, and this extends straight to the IMF and the World Bank and the Euro dollar, like everything. Like these systems are so intertwined and they use the same fundamental flaw that over leverages over leverages naturally. Well, what happens is that you buy that car for $50,000 and that $50,000 goes into somebody else's bank. And that bank has a fractional reserve policy that said based on that $50,000, they can now issue a new, new money based on the additional reserves, based on a fraction of the additional reserves that they just got. But those reserves aren't real. They were issued from another bank that was doing it fractionally off a different set of reserves. So when you look at the banking system, all the banks can individually try their best to be responsible and try their best to manage their balance sheet very frugally. But it simply doesn't do anything. It doesn't help because you have socialized the leverage. You have made it so that the system as a whole gets leveraged. So if there are 10 banks and one of them's trying really bad to be responsible and nine of them just kind of do what they're allowed to do to the extent that gets them the most profit and the most interest payments. Well, then the entire system becomes fully leveraged and everything collapses all at once. And the one bank left over that tried their best to do to do right essentially still gets screwed. And they had massively stunted growth in comparison to all of their competitors. But this situation gets even worse when you're talking about competing fiat currencies. Because the idea of having the same monetary standard of two countries using the same money, you don't have this dynamic of 
but basically the only way that you can increase your exports or your imports, like your in relationship to your imports, is production. And this is what I I tweeted this a couple of days ago, but that one of the core concepts of money, one of the the core reasons that money benefits society, uh, particularly sound money and what money enables is that the reason money should be insanely hard to produce is because money isn't consumable. It doesn't do anything for society. It's just a record keeping system. So if you can produce a lot of money, what you end up doing is wasting resources and manpower and man hours producing money instead of the stuff that society actually needs, which money is supposed to be there to allocate. So the reason you want a sound money, the reason you want a money that basically doesn't change in supply is so that nobody wastes time trying to cheat the record keeping system and instead produces goods for society. So when you have two systems, two nations that are using competing monies and basically their imports and exports vastly change based on the value of their money in relation to another money, well, then you end up in a situation where the idea of getting wealthy, quote unquote, to get more exports out of your country, to get more um to incentivize production in your country isn't by incentivizing production, it's by destroying the value of the savings of the currency. It's by lowering the value of the currency so that people stop wanting to buy your paper and instead they buy your products. So it creates this dynamic where instead of people fighting to be the most productive, you have nations fighting to be the best cheaters of the monetary system and to have the most network influence of their individual fiat money against the other competitive monies, against the other nations. Add to that the fact that every individual fiat system is adding leverage, um, in particular the, the world reserve fiats, the, the massive fiats, obviously the dollar being the prime example as it is the world reserve. Um, it's the largest currency, but the euro has this problem too, the Chinese yuan. Um, like this is basically throughout the quote unquote modern world. This is the practice is to lever up endlessly because you're constantly trying to fight other nations. So if if some other nation, basically another nation that has a stronger currency than you can basically bleed productive capacity out of your country. Now, understand when I say stronger currency in this example, I'm meaning a larger network that they have the ability to manipulate their currency more than a smaller nation and get away with it and it doesn't it doesn't hurt the overall currency as much so they can essentially get away with changing that dynamic more than smaller countries you know just like it's easy for you know the biggest fish in the pond can make really big waves and all the little fish can't really do anything about it they just have to ride the wave right So this is the messy foundation that all of this is built on top of. A system that naturally over-leverages itself in a socialized manner such that even good behavior is essentially priced out and cannot, is, is made unsustainable because the bad actors essentially take the good actors down with them rather than having them buffered against each other and where monetary 
policies where the manipulation of the money is a massive factor in whether or not you're a productive uh, country or a consumption country. But ultimately, at the end of the day, political money means that politics can poison all of the economic signals. Then enter the IMF. The IMF is built on top of this. It's like a conglomeration of fiat currencies, in a sense, and of the major countries uh, and economic interests of the modern world. And one funny thing that I noticed or that like popped in my head when I was listening back, listening back through this piece, um, uh, Gladstein's piece, was that there's almost this like pseudo-proof-of-stake system in the IMF. So they issue special drawing rights and essentially influence to the relative that's supposed to be based on the relative sizes of the economies um, that are participating. But the funny thing is, is that with fiat, the relative size, when you're issuing loans into existence and then you're getting interest from those loans and you have a currency that's more powerful than some other currency, you have a massive feedback loop to stay the most dominant because you can just siphon resources out of everyone by issuing loans that they need to, um, to, uh, to, to expand. You can basically hold them out like a treat, like, a, like bait, to get them to take loans in your currency and then get more inflows for your currency, which gives you more rights to basically play to vote up to have control over this international system so similar to how proof of stake if you have the largest stake you always have the largest stake and you're always going to get the most currency well it's kind of like that because if you have the strongest monetary network and you can issue fiat into existence as loans that pay you interest back that other people that essentially siphon a positive flow of resources out of other countries which is which is what's happening in this um, relationship uh, with the IMF and, you know, the poor countries around the world. Well, then you have a feedback loop that says that because I can issue the most debt because I have the largest currency, which means that I can have the largest flow of income back to my country purely, purely by manipulating my currency, purely through the cheating of my monetary policy. And that turns right around and gives me more influence in the IMF, it gives me more influence in these, the these pseudo, uh, you know, agreements, as if it's not entirely imposed and it's not basically a massive centralization of financial power into the hands of like barely a handful of countries. But I thought that was interesting that as I was going through these things and reading some of the um, linked material as well, I kind of some of it I skimmed or whatever, but some of it I kind of got into and I was like, oh, well, this is interesting. But it was funny, the the relative, like, like for instance, um, uh, there was a section, I don't have it off the top of my head, which sucks. I should have saved it. Um, but there's a section talking about how Switzerland has just, has a very small population, like a population that's basically comparable to a really big city in the United States. But it has a relative giant influence over the IMF. Um, in comparison to, he listed like Pakistan and India, I think, I, I don't know. But he listed like a bunch of different countries that have very, very big populations. Um, and all of them together had the same influence as Switzerland. 
and that essentially the the difference in their one-to-one population influence was a 90x difference. But what's funny is that this gives them this gives them additional drawing rights. This gives them additional funding uh, or or rights to designate where funds go and control over this and returns on debt. So again, like I said, that that's what stuck out to me was wow, this is when you really think of fiat as a issuance system, then it's political influence and the success, the previous success, the influence that your economy already has is what allows you to issue new money, which prices out all of the other economies and uh, essentially lets you loan to the people who need it most, which inevitably are the poor countries which allows you to siphon resources from them. So the bigger you are, the more you benefit from this system, and the more you are going to get to grow, which is going to benefit your position in this system. Fiat is great, isn't it? So let's look at the scam. Let's look at the, the racket that we have going here. You know, it's funny, have you ever heard or watched a movie or seen like the story, the framing... Or heard some of them break down their experiences when they were a kid of getting roped into drug dealing. Um, something that's very common, a, a, a relationship that's very common, is you have this drug dealer in the area, in the neighborhood, in the town, whatever it is, and they're very generous, right? They, uh, and they see a 12-year-old kid who wants to look good in front of his friends, and he's like, hey, buddy, come here. I'm going to get you these shoes. I'm going to get you the newest of the new Air Jordans, right? They're going to be shiny as hell, and you're going to be so popular. But it's a gift. It's a gift. I just, no big deal. No big deal. You just take them. You just take them. Then a week later, he shows back up. He's like, hey, remember those? Man, you're looking good in those shoes. You're looking so good in those shoes. Why don't you take this bag from me? I need you to drop this off somewhere. And then just like that, they're trapped. But they entice. They rope people in. They dangle a reward for the simple cost of just doing what they wanted. That's kind of how I see structural adjustment. Is you're going to, and it's even worse because it's in a relationship with the government. Where even, think about, think about how bad and unrepresentative of what the people want and of uh, people, Jesus, the people who just want to be left alone. Think about what a disaster even democratically elected leaders can be in so many different ways to how disconnected from reality they are and how much it poisons the individual people to not even to basically absolve themselves of any responsibility of producing anything for society and turns the and twists the entire culture to in a fight to be the most pathetic to be the most dependent so that they can get a bigger slice of the giant pie that is being stolen from society and redistributed through redistributed through political means i've used the analogy that it's like having refs just hand out points in a game and everybody stops playing the game and instead they just start begging and appealing to the refs to get as many points as possible and then they just they blame you know it's like well this team's too good at football how am i supposed to compete they should you, you should give more points 
I should get more points because they're too good at football. And what happens is you have football dies, right? Is that you just don't. Nobody plays football anymore. Playing football becomes a burden. Being good at the game is now a, a crutch. It's now, it now works against you. And think about what that does when the game is producing things for society and making society prosperous. So all that is to say that democratically elected governments are a disaster. Now imagine when it's a dictator. You don't even get the facade of representation and at least some sort of feedback that you get with a democratically elected leader. Instead, you get a strong arm. You get the equivalent of a drug lord. And what's insane is that this is easier to work with from the IMF because what they're trying to do is have influence to, to manipulate the economy to do what they want. So if they come in, like think about it as like a bank coming into like a poor area is let's say the bank wanted to rip down a whole neighborhood's worth of houses and put up a, uh, a resort. I don't, I don't know why, it's a stupid example. But they wanted to put up a resort for everybody who works at the bank, right? Essentially, they had their own ends. They wanted to make an income off of something. But nobody in the neighborhood wanted this to happen. Like, they're not going to go house to house and deal with each person deal with each family that has been living there and wants to live in that house and, you know, is growing food on their land. That's a huge uphill battle. You have to have convince tons of people and you have to treat them all as if they have property rights. You have to treat them all as if they actually own their lands and they, their decisions are the things that matter. Their agreement is something that you have to have. Now, well, what if there's a drug lord? What if there's, what if there's a gang in that neighborhood that strong-arming every business, every home, every family, well, then you just go to the head of the gang. You've got everything you want. That neighborhood is bulldozed for your project in no time. And anyone who protested quietly disappeared. And you don't have to think about it. Doesn't matter. As long as the bank gets what they want. I wish I could say in the story of the IMF and the World Bank, that this was the exception. But that's the crazy thing. It's the rule. And if you want to address whether or not this system is a scam, that it is a racket to abuse countries that are easy to abuse, just look at the results. And even if it is somehow just a structural accident, how many half centuries of bleeding poor people, of value, of destroying countries, of installing and supporting dictators and turning, the, turning a blind eye to massacres, to slavery, to concentration camps, to violently massacring protesters. How many decades does it take before it becomes malicious? Before they deserve the punishment for actively intending to make this happen one way or the other? It's like it, a million cases of manslaughter. Doesn't it kind of become arbitrary at some point to distinguish whether or not it's manslaughter or murder? I mean, would it really be that different if the Nazis had been like, oops, I tripped and fell and murdered six million Jews? The overall results of the IMF, the World Bank, of these institutions and their quote-unquote aid for the third world 
is a downward spiral of poor countries drowning in debt, their environments and their economies gutted and shifted toward production and resource extraction for large corporations and for the countries in the first world under debts they cannot possibly pay back by countries that don't care because all they want is to keep issuing them new debt so that they can keep extracting resources. Where democratic leaders keep getting overthrown, where leaders who are focused on strengthening their own currency, strengthening their own economy and their own nation for their own people and their own people's interests, keep getting assassinated, keep getting attacked, get undermined, earn them horrible credit ratings at the IMF, basically get them shut out of the international monetary system for not playing along. And where over and over again, the best friends of the IMF are murderous authoritarian dictators who will do whatever they want and engage in massive amounts of corruption and theft of this very money, which the IMF and the creditor nations don't even care as long as they're brutal enough to get the interest payments from their population. And where through the entire period, $62 trillion worth of resources was siphoned out of the third world nations, out of the developing world. If it isn't an outright racket, a blatant and purposeful scam and means to control the developing world. I don't care. It doesn't matter. It should be treated as it is. But anybody who takes the blinders off, anybody who wakes up and isn't very naive in my opinion, and with respect, can see that it's not, knows the reality of the world knows the reality of governments. This isn't uncommon. This isn't, this is the rule. This is all of them. This is how they work. There's a really great book, actually. There's a, um, by a Smedley Butler, general, um, called War is a Racket. And it's a general who, uh, or major general, excuse me, uh, Smedley Butler, though. And he fought in World War I. And he wrote War is a Racket. He basically became completely disenfranchised with the narrative. All, all he saw was monetary interests. And the gap, the difference between peacetime domination of a country or peacetime manipulation of a currency that results in poverty and wartime profiteering, it's not a very big gap. But there's a quote from War is a Racket. And understand, this is not an isolated incident. This is not like, oh, it was so bad during this period. You'd never go to war without an economic reason. It is always a racket. The political reason is the excuse. The economic reason is the reason. Quote, I spent 33 years and four months in active military service, and during that period I spent most of my time as a high-class muscle man for big business, for Wall Street, and for the bankers. In short, I was a racketeer, 
a gangster for capitalism. I helped make Mexico and especially Tampico safe for American oil interests in 1914. I helped make Haiti and Cuba a decent place for the National City Bank boys to collect revenues in. I helped in the raping of half a dozen Central American republics for the benefit of Wall Street. I helped purify Nicaragua for the International Banking House of Brown Brothers in 1902-1912. I brought light to the Dominican Republic for the American sugar interests in 1916. I helped make Honduras right for the American fruit companies in 1903. In China in 1927, I helped see to it that Standard Oil went on its way unmolested. Looking back on it, I might have given Al Capone a few hints. The best he could do was operate his racket in three districts. I operated on three continents. Let's pause right here and talk about keeping our Bitcoin fresh. It's important not to leave it out in the sun. Not to leave your Bitcoin in a hot place, in a hot wallet. You want to keep it cold. You want to keep it in cold storage so it's the freshest, most crisp Bitcoin that you can have. And you'll do that on the cold card. The cold card Mark IV not only is very versatile and looks like a cypherpunk calculator, but it also keeps your Bitcoin fresh, keeps it cold, the coldest of cold storage with the cold card. Get 5% off with code Bitcoin Audible and get not only the most secure hardware wallet that you can get, Bitcoin only, running since 2011, but get yourself a couple of tap signers. Get yourself some open dimes, a block clock, and one of the many other hardware devices that CoinKite offers. There is a link right in the show notes, guyswan.com slash coldcard, where you can check out all of it. And the discount code is the name of this podcast. I know, I just blew your mind. Let's jump back in. So how can we think of, or in what way... The Smedley Butler's quote apply here. Because this isn't war, right? While it clearly is a racket, the reason war is so profitable is because you essentially get to it's it's very much like the situation that I just um detailed out with the drug the drug lord that dominates a neighborhood so that you don't have to worry about any of the individual people. War is so unbelievably profitable and it's attached to all these bankers and corporations specifically because it means that you get the resources without having to care about the rights or the ownership of anyone else there. It's like a clean slate. It's like discovering and claiming a place where people are already there. The bombs come in and wipe out your opposition and you just deal business. You just do business with the bomb droppers and they give you the contracts for rebuilding everything for taking over all the mines, for taking over all the resource stashes, for taking advantage of the new supply of slaves, I mean citizens, free citizens of your new freedom regime that you install, using the freedom money set up by your central bank, which is the first building you build after you bomb them into oblivion. This is essentially the same benefit of dealing with dictators. This is why they do it. It's kind of like ambulance chasing. You know how like, uh... Let's say like a lawyer or somebody is chasing an ambulance so they can go to the actual site of a disaster and somebody in the middle of a catastrophe and basically solicit for their services. It's like that, except that you're doing business with the guy with the gun that's shooting up 
the mall that's causing the disaster and then you're investing in the ambulance. And where do we see this relationship when it comes to the IMF and the, the debt issuance monster that they have pushed onto the developing world? We see it in who gets the contracts. We see it in who builds the structural adjustment. And I can't remember, I don't have all the quotes with me, but as I've been listening back through this, there were details given out in like a couple of different situations and had various percentages, but it seemed to be almost perfectly consistent that it was like 70 to 80% where they get like a structural adjustment loan and then 80% of the money to do the structural adjustment, to do the 20 stipulations attached to the loan to, you know, eviscerate a bunch of farmland and, you know, make shrimp farms in Bangladesh or wipe out, um, you know, a certain type of crop and replace it with all cotton that they're shipping off to um, the United States or to England or whatever it is, that the contracts go back to U.S. corporations. So they are literally building production that benefits the first world, that benefits the creditor nation. They are issuing money in order to, uh, to extend this loan to a country that they know cannot afford it. They are earning interest on this productive capital that they build that is done specifically to benefit them while the creditor nation gets paid all the loan money to build the project, while they all the while they prop up a dictator that would not nearly have the influence or power if they didn't have access to ungodly amounts of money from first world nations who don't give a flying f about the prosperity or the freedom of the country that they're basically raping of resources. So essentially they're reaching out and finding countries that are poor enough and authoritarian enough, and if they are poor enough but not authoritarian enough, they'll fix the non-authoritarian part of it by backing a coup or a dictator over a democratically elected leader or anybody who gives a crap about the actual situation uh, or the actual people in that country. And they find these countries in their horrible governments in order to run a racket where they can just cycle money back to themselves while taxing the population of the poor country. That's what they're doing. That's what the interest ends up being. So what happens? Think about what the results of this is. The creditor nation or the IMF gets to build what they want to build in this poor nation, which gives them the resources they want, not resources or productive capital that benefits the nation they're abusing. The people of the country get slapped with a never-ending interest payment put on them by an authoritarian government, and the creditor nation gets the contracts. So the money loaned to the poor nation gets paid back to the rich nation in order to do the work that benefits the rich nation. And it can go on indefinitely because it's built on a fiat system where they never have to worry about losing because it's collective leverage. And who gets screwed the worst when the leverage finally gets called due? The poor nations. They get further trapped in this cycle. They get further indebted with a bigger drain where the funnel out of resources and capital gets larger and larger every time the situation gets worse and worse. And they just bail them out again with more debt. Because why wouldn't the creditor nation want another contract, want to build more things that benefit them, and get a higher interest payment? Going back to the example I gave of the car 
and loaning money into existence to bid up the price of car and then you pay me the interest and I'm very I'm happy because I'm just going to sit back and earn the interest. The situation is this much worse. Not only am I issuing you the money to buy the car, but you are forcing someone else to pay back the debt. So you don't care how much the car costs. In fact, the car could be grossly overpriced. You could pay a million dollars for a car that's actually only worth 50000 Or even better, you pay 500000 but you get a million dollar loan and $500,000 just kind of disappears. You put a gun to your neighbor's head and you make him pay the interest rate. You're using the car as my limo to drive me around every time I show up. You're running me uh, a limo service. And where'd you get the car? From my car factory. I issued you the loan to buy the car from me so that you could drive me around and you you put a gun to your neighbor's head and made them pay for it. There's a quote from the Gladstein piece. If you want to, there's a very simple reason this exists. It's got nothing to do with aid. It's got nothing to do with freedom. It's got nothing to do with helping developing nations. It's got nothing to do with any of that. It's about the fact that you've got a country that's in a bad enough situation that you can get whatever the hell you want out of them. And creditor nations, the IMF scam, is abusing it for every penny they can. Quote, To give an example of what this might look like in a given year, in 2012, developing countries received $1.3 trillion, including all income, aid, and investment. But that same year, more than $3.3 trillion flowed out. In other words, according to anthropologist Jason Hickel, developing countries sent $2 trillion more to the rest of the world than they received. End quote. That is why this system exists. That's it. It's because they get more money than they put in. All of the political excuses, the aid, the philanthropy is just bullshit. It is a racket, plain and simple. And if the racket wasn't insanely profitable and didn't get them exactly what they want, they wouldn't do it. They would never do it. And the gasoline on this disastrous blaze is the fiat issuance of debt. The fact that no matter how bad it gets, they can just bail out the situation with another round of debt at an order of magnitude larger than the last one. That is not possible in a sound monetary system. On a single global monetary system, the manipulation of currencies cannot be used to essentially attack or abuse other nations. cannot be used to fight other nations in an attempt to get exports or imports relatively shifted against their competitor. It breaks the feedback loop of this racket. And there's an amazing quote from this that is from Saifedean and then I loved... Uh, which I already talked about, I think, in one of the episodes, but then I also loved Gladstein's summation of it. Um, so I'm going to read this whole, it's just two paragraphs. It says, quote, as Saifuddin Amus writes, quote, the developing world consists of countries that had not yet adopted modern industrial technologies by the time an inflationary global monetary system began replacing a relatively sound one in 1914. This dysfunctional global monetary system 
continuously compromised these countries' development by enabling local and foreign governments to expropriate the wealth produced by their people. End quote. And this is back to Gladstein. In other words, rich countries got industrialized before they got fiat. Poor countries got fiat before they got industrialized. The only way to break the cycle of dependency, according to Nabarema and other organizers of the Africa Bitcoin Conference, might be to transcend fiat. I just thought that was such a great summation, such a great breakdown of the simple and ultimate imbalance that led to this abuse being so easy by the creditor nations, by the IMF, and led the African nations, the developing world, to be in such a, such a weakened, subservient position with no realistic way out. And honestly, how could you? How could you get out if, even if you got local power, even if you got any influence and response from your local government, when thousands of times the resources could be easily and dismissively allocated because again, it's, it's fiat. How hard is it for them to issue new debts, right? Towards someone who is just going to strong arm you out of your influence. They're just going to come in with a gun and a stick and get you to do what they want. It's another great quote. Um, and this is from Payer, Cheryl Payer's works, which at this point are basically like 30, 40 years old. So these are outdated in the sense of like any sort of comprehensive uh, list of what is going on in this era. Um, but there's a great quote that says, Hence, the IMF prefers to work with undemocratic clients who can more easily dismiss troublesome judges and put down street protests. According to Payer, the military coups in Brazil in 1964, Turkey in 1960, Indonesia in 1966, Argentina in 1966 and the Philippines in 1972 were examples of IMF-opposed leaders being forcibly replaced by IMF-friendly ones. Even if the fund wasn't directly involved in the coup, in each of these cases, it arrived enthusiastically a few days, weeks, or months later to help the new regime implement structural adjustment. I'm sure those examples and many, many more were just coincidences. The developing world, you know, I don't, I, don't think it's a, I don't think it's a conspiracy. I think the developing world is just incredibly unlucky and they're just destined to have governments that just by pure happenstance take billions, hundreds of billions of dollars from the IMF and World Bank and will do and are friendly with the IMF and World Bank and do anything that they want them to do and outright dismiss and shut down the opposition or any interest in the actual country and the people that they are running or supposed to represent. Yeah, I'm sure it's just a coincidence. I mean, come on, who has ever heard of political institutions, intelligence agencies, and massive international corporate and banking giants spying on citizens or manipulating elections or flooding the media with propaganda and lies, assassinating leaders, violating basic human rights, and profiting off other people's suffering and death. I mean, that would be crazy. That's like never happened. Seriously, our own government 
does that to people in this country? What do you think they would be willing to do? And what degree do you think they would be willing to excuse when they're doing it in the developing world while they gleefully partner with dictators and tyrants who abuse and murder their own people? Isn't that enough? Isn't that all you need to know? In order for it to be obvious by what moral standard they make their decisions? Or to be more accurate, what complete lack of anything even approaching what one might call a moral concern or principle informing their decision making? You just don't do that by accident. There's another great quote from this. Um, I mean, this is just riddled with just straight fire, but in the regards to the perspective and the obvious intent, they prove it over and over and over again, exactly what that intent is and exactly how much they do not care one iota about any of these people. Quote, Far from playing the role of Good Samaritan, the fund does not even follow the timeless human tradition established more than 4,000 years ago by Hammurabi in ancient Babylon of forgiving interest after natural disasters. In 1985, a devastating earthquake hit Mexico City, killing more than 5,000 people and causing $5 billion worth of damage. Fund staff, who claim to be saviors, helping to end poverty and save countries in crisis, arrived a few days later, demanding to be repaid. That's like if your house burned down, and the next day, a representative from the bank came and demanded that you pay them what was left on the mortgage while there was still smoke rising from the ashes of the life that you had built. To then call what that bank is doing community aid, trying to help the poor, trying to help the people, anyone would see that as comically ridiculous. But that's what we let the IMF and the World Bank get away with. They call themselves philanthropists. They call it foreign aid. Quote, Between 1979 and 1984, some 59,700 trans migrants were taken to West Papua, where, with large-scale support from the World Bank, more than 20,000 Papuans fed, fled the violence into neighboring Papua New Guinea. Refugees reported to international media that, quote, their villages were bombed, their settlements burned, women raped, livestock killed, and numbers of people indiscriminately shot, while others were imprisoned and tortured. Yeah. Foreign aid. Apparently foreign aid is the new term, is the new euphemism for financing terrorism to get kickbacks. One of the interesting things, though, is how, how much it just mirrors, especially from the financial situation, like... What we have in the Federal Reserve, what we have in the fiat system that we are under, is a Ponzi scheme. It is a very traditional Ponzi scheme in every sense. In the, the way that only with more debt, only with burdening, uh, extending the burden onto the future generations, 
basically roping in more people with more debt, with more burden in the next cycle, in the next round. Can we pay for the current round, for the current cycle that we are in? There's always more debt than money that is owed. So not only does it happen within our within our own fiat system, like within the, a singular fiat architecture, but the IMF and the World Bank are essentially an even less responsive, like less representative system that is even more distant, that is explicitly targeting and abusing the most vulnerable countries in the world and running a racket by a by explicitly abusing the situation of the fiat Ponzi to push it onto these countries, to essentially enslave them with debt instead of direct political control. There's another great, great quote from this. It says, The fund makes the impossible possible. Small, poor countries hold so much debt that they could never pay it all off. These bailouts corrupt the incentives of the global financial system. In a true free market, there would be serious consequences for risky lending. The creditor bank would lose its money. But if the loan isn't issued, if the loan is issued, then they have nothing to lose but the issued money. And if they can just issue money to get out from get out from losing losing out the apparent taking the apparent loss on their balance sheet they just keep the ponzi scheme going it just gets bigger to prevent it from collapsing quote the generosity of the west enabled unaccountable leaders to plunge their nations into debt deeper than ever before the system was as payer rights in lent and lost a straightforward ponzi scheme the new loans went straight to paying for the old loans. The system needed to grow in order to avoid collapse. Now, I'm out of time. Basically, I need to wrap this up. But uh, there were still a bunch of quotes that I didn't quite get to. But um, I think we covered. There's so many specifics that you could get into. If you haven't, holy God, if you have not listened to this piece... You can either listen to the individual episodes. I do have like shorter guys take guys takes that kind of immediately follow up my reaction to some of what I was reading. But honestly, if uh, if you don't want to go through all that, just listen to the piece. It's two hours and like 40 minutes, um, I think, when I was listening to it. Um, and uh, but it's so good. It's so packed with like there's a lot of things where I just said, oh, they supported dictators. And Alex Gladstein gives like numerous example after example of doing exactly that so there were things that i just claimed um because we've already been over all of these specific examples but um i assume you've listened to and or read um the piece but if you haven't this is my this is my at the end of the episode plea to please take the time and listen to it one of the things that has enabled the IMF and World Bank to do this is the fact that everyone has turned the other way. That they've gotten away with it by not, by avoiding attention, or not avoiding attention, but by a complicit media establishment 
that just doesn't investigate, that doesn't call attention to them, that runs defense to protect the system because they're part of it. They're profiting from it. They're players. We have become a fiat system, top to bottom. We are fiat corporations. We are fiat political institutions. And they are all incentivized in the same direction. And the corporate media is a perfect example of all the incentives aligned to just play the establishment, the political narrative, because that's where the financing comes in. If you play the political narrative, you get the financing. And in an economy that's leveraged 40 to 1 or worse, you can't survive on real money. You have to have financing. In fact, you've been put into an ever, never-ending circle of needing financing to pay off the last financing, which means that if you aren't politically viable, if you are not uh, serving the political interest, the financial and banking interests, then you die. You die. You don't get, you're the one that gets your loan called due and you're the one that doesn't get the bailout. You're the one that doesn't get the preferential lending. And if you don't get it, you're dead in the water. You can't do that in a fiat system. That is why they all become aligned. That is why it becomes a fiat political culture. And that's why it extends globally when you have a global reserve currency that's backed by absolutely nothing but political power. But Bitcoin absolutely changes this. Just like I said at the beginning of this, or towards the beginning, is that one of the, one of the worst dynamics is the competition between currencies and the incredible power that countries have, um, that a more dominant monetary country has in order to force compliance or exert control over a smaller country because the, particularly in one that's drowned in debt, is the manipulation of interest rates in the dollar economy has a, a vastly larger or more exaggerated effect on a smaller country that cannot get loans, that essentially cannot get financing without direct support from exactly that country and has to deal with changes in their monetary policy. So the U.S. can just kind of on a whim change monetary policy that will decimate smaller countries. But that dynamic changes. That, that whole dynamic goes away when, when you have a global standard that is independent or you simply have an independent currency that is not run uh, by any single country or does not have a manipulable monetary policy that multiple smaller countries can escape to like we're seeing and we're seeing exactly the results of you know the imf and world bank reactions to el salvador doing this if you haven't um if you haven't listened to the episode i can't remember i will have the read in the show notes i can't remember what read number it is but it's um naibu kelly's piece from the orange pill issue of bitcoin magazine and it's uh it's titled stop drinking the elite's kool-aid and he makes a very very good case that the that there is zero financial basis for the outright attack of the IMF, but what they're doing is trying to get out from under from needing debt from the IMF. They're they're essentially trying to escape this debt cycle. And just like Gladstein mentioned that essentially if the IMF doesn't approve, like their credit rating um is is everything for their ability to get loans 
uh, to get access to financing from any nation in the thing. So it's basically you either play ball or you're or you're dead. And this is exactly what they did. Even though El Salvador has seen a better than 90% decline in violence, they've seen massive uh, GDP increases, like unheard of increases, and across the board, better statistics and growth. Just really an, an incredible turnaround from what was the murder capital of the world. And their their credit rating plummeted. The IMF attacked them. The IMF has been, and the, the establishment media has one by one talked about what a disaster they are. Without basically reading the entire or summing up the entire article, I highly recommend that one. Like I said, I will have that in the show notes. Um, but uh, I think it was actually pretty recently that they finally stipulated or, or um, said they have like final details on the Bitcoin bond, which is going to be really interesting. I mean, we're in the heart of a bear market right now. So um, I don't even know how that plays out exactly. But it's just such a unique situation because you're we're witnessing the game theory. We're witnessing the potential of selling bonds in an environment where fiat financing is not the arbiter. It is not the judge of the value of the bond because they're backed by Bitcoin. So anyway, it's a really interesting dynamic and it's really fascinating to watch this game theory begin to play out but this is all kind of a bit of a tangent from how i want to end this which is just reading a section from gladstein's piece so this is uh regarding jeff booth when he says booth um jeff booth is the uh, author of the price of tomorrow which i highly recommend another great book but here's the quote bitcoin booth says can short-circuit the old system that has subsidized wealthy countries at the expense of wages in poor countries. In that old system, the periphery had to be sacrificed to protect the core. In the new system, the periphery and core can work together. Right now, he says, the U.S. dollar system keeps people poor through wage deflation in the periphery. But by equalizing the money and creating a neutral standard for everyone... A different dynamic is created. With one monetary standard, labor rates would necessarily be pulled closer together instead of kept apart. We don't have words for such a dynamic, Booth says, because it has never existed. He suggests forced cooperation. Booth describes the U.S. ability to instantly issue any amount of more debt as theft in base money. Readers may be familiar with the Cantillon effect, where those who are closest to the money printer benefit from fresh cash, while those farthest away suffer. Well, it turns out there is a global Cantillon effect too, where the U.S. benefits from issuing the global reserve currency and poor countries suffer. A Bitcoin standard, Booth says, ends this. The IMF and World Bank racket is just an extension, is just a bigger, more disconnected, more violent, and more unhinged version of the same fiat currency we have within our own country, of the same never-ending debt cycle. And just like a sound monetary standard will fix this imbalance within a fiat system, even more so and even more incredibly Potentially first, it will begin to unravel 
this fiat cycle between fiat systems. Because on an international scale, it will begin to threaten the hegemony. It already has threatened the hegemony of the global financial system and essentially made their highly continually decrease and which will accelerate as time goes on, the value of their permission to participate. When the entire global financial system is virtual money, is fiat money that by necessity is permissioned, where you have to be included because the right to be a bank in this system can only be politically granted, well then it holds all the power and you're just you're just removed from the international system. You, you're disconnected. You have no access and no chance to grow and no chance to participate in the global international economy if you do not get political permission, if you do not play the game per the game makers want you to play it. But that is no longer the case because there is a permissionless system that you can opt into and countries are and increasingly will be opting into it. And they will be exactly the countries that get no benefit and are just stuck under the thumb of the international monetary permissioned networks. And for those that get the benefit of the IMF and take the loans and prop up the authoritarian regimes, well, the individual people can still escape from out from under them. So just like the individual small countries can get out from under the thumb of the large international fiat systems, the individuals and small towns and small communities can get out from underneath the influence and control of their authoritarian governments. And Africa is basically the prime example of seeing this play out. And I think it's going to accelerate. And when we get another bull market in Bitcoin, man, it is going to be incredible. It's going to be incredible to see the foundation that we have laid in the last one and see it double down and proved right again in another wave of this. A Bitcoin standard fixes this and it will remove all the value of a permissioned system by making a permissionless one continue to grow and continue to challenge it. Until one day it eventually looks to most people to be as stupid to go back or even worry about being a part of the permissioned fiat system as it would be to somebody who's grown up with the internet to think that they're going to cancel their internet service and get back on an analog phone line. And just that possibility of ending multiple layers of the fiat disaster is something worth fighting tooth and nail and with every ounce of our energy for as long as we possibly can to achieve. It is worth it. And just to have the opportunity, the possibility, is such a unique thing in human history. What a time to be alive. So, with that, uh, Gladstein always, always writes an amazing piece. And uh, I hope you guys enjoyed this guy's take. And I have got, I have caught... I've been going back through some DMs and I've caught a lot of suggestions that I had missed. There are some really good articles. Thank you guys who a number of you have sent me things that I had just kind of missed back in all the way back from like beginning of December. Um, 
but uh, there are definitely at least one or two that I know I'm going to be reading at some point. Um, so keep them coming. If you've got a suggestion for an article, something that you read that you thought was really good or analogy that you thought sparked some you know, great thought, please, I love suggestions. Don't, don't be shy. And also, uh, I want to thank everyone who has been boosting on Fountain. Uh, I see Vake a lot. Um, which I haven't seen Vake on Twitter. I, I, he probably is like shunning Twitter, either that or Twitter is just hiding Vake stuff from me. But Vake boosted my uh, 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 read of Gigi's quick and dirty explanation for 2000 sats. Um, uh, thank you. Thank you, my good sir. And I've also noticed that um, there was actually a time that Vake boosted my show 5000 sats. So Bitcoin Audible got 5,000 sats and Linux Unplugged only got like 3,000 sats. So, you know, maybe maybe you're winning in the Fountain leaderboards, but guess who's winning in the Vake leaderboards? That's right, Bitcoin Audible. Suck it, Linux Unplugged. Michael boosted 500 sats. I love guys' takes. Thank you. I love guys' takes too. Um, Murmur, uh, 1,674 sats. That's a very specific number. Um, I rarely use the term Satoshis. Sats are the unit, in my honest opinion. Nice read. Thank you. Uh, that's also GG's. I guess I said Satoshis instead of Sats. I don't know. I usually use Sats, too. I agree. Uh, Raichwa. Reach? Right? Raichwa. Um, look forward to more episodes on the basics of Bitcoin. Let's go. I agree. 250 sats, by the way. Um, appreciate that. No, I'm, I'm definitely jacked about the getting back to basics. Um, and, and actually, if anybody wants to suggest names for the show type, I don't think I want to call them guy stakes because they'll kind of get mixed in. Um, and I could just like not give them a title and just kind of like title them, you know, what's an, what's a Bitcoin address or what's a public and private key. But if anybody wants to boost in and suggest what they have as a name or like a cool, simple thing that I can put before it just to distinguish this series so that I can easily separate it out later, highly, highly appreciated. I'm kind of thinking back to basics right now, but I don't know. It seems like a lot. Um, I don't know. I'm totally open for suggestions. I'm in love with nothing. Back to basics is just kind of like the simple fill in right now. So um, uh, thank all you guys so much for supporting the show. Um, I'll read some, uh, I'll try to make sure to read a couple of boosts every episode because I want you to know that I really do appreciate it. And I do um, scroll through Fountain and, you know, whenever I want to boost or if I'm in like a, I'm in a sad mood, I'm like, let me go through my boost. And it's like, all right, all right, you guys, you guys make this worth it. I love it. I appreciate it. And thank you also to Swan Bitcoin the best Bitcoin onboarding service in the space to CoinKite for the cold card and for all of the amazing Bitcoin hardware wallets and for keeping my Bitcoin fresh and of course for Fold. Give me sats back on everything in life. I got I got some great sats back today actually. So uh, a thank you to them always for supporting this show as well and for having some awesome products. So with that, I will catch you all on the next episode of Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan, and until next time, everybody, take it easy, guys.
War is a racket. It always has been. It is possibly the oldest, easily the most profitable, surely the most vicious. It is the only one international in scope. It is the only one in which the profits are reckoned in dollars and the losses in lives. Major General Smedley Butler This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.